Father in heaven, what is man without you? What is all that he knows? Vast accumulation though it be, but a chipped fragment if he doesn't know you. What is all his striving? Could it even encompass a world, but a half-finished, half-finished work if he does not know you? This is an excerpt from um, an introductory prayer uh, found in an essay called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing by Soren Kierkegaard. And the prayer itself is, is very long, and then the essay goes on, and there are literally hundreds of prayers like this in his work. Um, but this is a very nice one to start with. Um, I played with a lot of different ideas for this message tonight. I've played with them for a couple of weeks now, which is a privilege to be able to do that for those of us who only preach once in a while. We get to have that privilege. Um, how a person can possibly do this every week um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of crazy. You wonder why preachers do series, right? Well, it's so that you don't live in fear of Monday mornings going, well, that was great. Now what? And my first idea was really great. I mean, it was really great. I was happy with it. It was insightful. It was provocative. It had the hook, book, look, took thing, however that goes. Um, it was even clever. And I wanted it to be clever. I wanted to be able to discuss it um, on a podcast with some reformed beardy guy who makes his own beer and, and really good beer at that. But it was a train wreck. Uh, it was awful when it was written down. And so I'm not going to read it to you. And for that, you're welcome. Um, so I still had to make a decision. Still had to sit down and choose something. So... About a week ago, I, I sat down to rethink it. What am I going to talk about? I don't have a preaching team um, to assign me, hey, you're going to talk about this. Um, staff here kind of have that um, a little lucky. They can sit down and they say, okay, Steve is going to do Psalm 23 this week. And Kathy's going to do Philippians 2 this week. And Jeff is going to do Habakkuk. The whole book of Habakkuk, for example, and, and I, don't have to, I don't have to do with that, and that's really cool. Um, but I ran into a problem with my good and wonderful and clever ideas. Um, historically, my really good and clever ideas have all been about me. They've all been about me trying to be insightful or provocative or, or clever, um, let's take a look at this first slide here. This is um, one of my great ideas. <laughs> um, the idea was going to be called amygdala mandala. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and the idea was that out of the things that occupy our minds, out of the things that we pour our energy into, and that we're happy about or that we're afraid of comes something beautiful if we're engaging the Lord in the process. I mean, it's not such a, a bad idea, I suppose, but look at that. That's really weird. Um, this particular slide, I don't know if you can see it, it's a bank um, behind a picture of, you know, the amygdala here. Um, and it, it could be that we're driven for profit. We're driven to 
produce or we're afraid of failing or whatever it is. That could just be one of the things. Uh, next slide. By the way, this Pearl is helping tonight and she's doing a great job. Um, next thing, that's my daughter Maggie from a few years ago. And, uh, and just the idea here is that we've got a lot on our minds. We've got our families, our, mind, our loved ones on our minds. We want to make them happy. We want them to be happy and healthy. We don't want anything bad to happen to them. And so that consumes a lot of our mental energy. Uh, next one. Um, and that's me. And uh, we get really occupied with ourselves sometimes. Uh, we get occupied. And it doesn't mean that we're narcissistic jerks. It just means that there's a lot that gets on our shoulders. And we just kind of get stuck in this thing of, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? How is this going to work? Or maybe even, I'm clever. I'm great. Uh, next slide. I still like this one. Um, this is kind of, and I don't remember what book this is that's in the brain there. Um, but it's, it just goes to show that we can get stuck. We can, uh, we can get stuck on concepts. We can get stuck on the things that we know. Um, and it just occupies and overpowers. And if I may paraphrase uh, from a rock band, Rush, we get so full of what is right that we can't see what is good. And that's kind of what, what that slide there is going for. Um, next slide, I think. Yeah, this one. Uh, another one of my great ideas, and I, I still liked this one, but it just didn't work. Um, idea called St. John's Keep. Um, and what you have here, this is a reference to John 13, 23, and you've got um, the Apostle John sitting at the table uh, during the, the Last Supper, and he leans over onto Jesus. And the idea was like, this is a safe place to be at the table with Jesus. And it was, a, it was an idea formed around um, communion and worship and the study of Scripture, and just very, very simple. Um, it was a good idea, but... It just, uh, we couldn't find a time to do it, and so it just kind of fell apart, and, and there it was. Uh, next slide. All right. Ideas like this, as much as I liked them, and as much good that some of them may have done, um, like I said, they, they've been about me. They've been about my being afraid and feeling inadequate, feeling old and irrelevant, and most of all, have been about defining myself by undermining everything that I'm not, defining myself by attacking everything that I'm jealous or resentful of. Um, sometimes I've been able to address legitimate concerns that may have actually merited a nice sermon, but I'm pretty certain that over the years, I have not always been addressing them out of love. In my efforts to be relevant and to matter, or maybe even to be smart or good or cool, I have scarcely ever reached that level of clanging symbol mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, to say nothing about the, the whatever it is, the prestige or the notoriety that I was really after. Um, now, I have to be fair about this, and this is not something that I'm terribly comfortable with. And, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I have to say that not all of it has been purely out of ego. Um, 
I've been following Jesus for most of my adult life since I was 18. This is about 30 years now. And in spite of all my stink and all my wanderings, there's been a very consistent thread running through these 30 years of Christian life and Christian relationships. It's the mark and the movements of a shepherd to people who are following God. I can't help it. I'm, I'm compelled to it. I'm not an evangelist. Um, I don't really... It's not to people outside of the flock that I'm, you know, drawn to. It's, it's not my zone, I guess. Um, I really suck at it, to tell you the truth. Um, my gifting and... and my particular gifting, and all of the followers of the Lord have a gifting, have a particular gifting that is meant to be used here in the community of God. Um, I, I think probably everybody has read a book about it or at least heard a sermon about it, but if you don't know what that gifting is and, and you're a part of a living and breathing community of God, I encourage you so much to find out what that is and offer it to our brothers and sisters here. Um, in the service of God. And that's a little sideways there, but um, it is important. Um, I guess my gifting is to walk with and live with and encourage people who are already on the way. It seems that in spite of my ideas, like brains with stuff in them, uh, whether they're intriguing or bizarre or just dumb, there are streams that flow that I, us, walk beside as we follow Jesus. And some of them are pure, purely and wholly and entirely focused on Jesus while retaining all of the weird and wonderful elements that make them ours. And there are some streams that just get clogged and redirected and they've got all this junk in them that keeps us focused from focusing wholly and entirely upon Jesus with a singular and undistracted mind. So the point of all this, uh, my friends, is that there can be many, many different reasons for doing the things that we do for ourselves, for the things that we do for each other, uh, for our communities, or for the Lord himself. In fact, at any given time, we should understand that our, our drives, our desires, and our intentions are probably just a little mixed. We have water from both streams in our bottles, as it were. And while I don't believe that this will be entirely rectified, we're not going to be entirely free from this um, condition on this side of the Lord's coming kingdom. The Bible, nonetheless, admonishes us to engage in the process of renewing and purifying our hearts, our minds, and our motivations. A um, couple of examples of this. Um, some verses we're going to look at, and they're from the ESV, English Standard Version. First one, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, next slide. Next verse, Philippians 12, uh, 2, 12. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, and Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi saying, you, you obeyed when I was there, continue to do this while I'm not there. Um, as in my presence, how much more in my absence? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, it's a process. We don't get it all at once. Um, and throughout the millennia of sound Christian teaching and biblical interpretation and just understanding that we walk the path, we're not transported to the end of the path the moment that we believe. Now, those passages and others like them, I think, are pretty straightforward. Um, there's other passages kind of in this vein that I, I want to read. Um, the passages that are going to take us to our main idea tonight, along with some stuff uh, from Kierkegaard's Purity of Heart discourse. Um, these verses are from James 1 and James 4, respectively. Uh, first one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And next verse. Um... And I think it's curious that the, the beginning of James's letter, you know, picks up that theme. And then here at the end, we see that theme come up again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. I've always found James to be a really difficult book, personally. Uh, to me, um, just kind of at a face value kind of read, um, it feels like the writer, in this case, uh, the Lord's actual brother, James, feels like he's kind of all over the place. Um, he talks about being double-minded, then he's talking about riches, then he's talking about favoritism, and it, it just kind of goes and loops around. Um, and I know it's not the case that it's scattered. I know it's not the case that uh, he's, you know, got bats in the belfry or something. And I'm thankful for scholars and better preachers than me who can really, really unpack that text, um, which is not something we're going to do here tonight. And I'm very thankful. James addresses quite a variety of issues, but I think it's interesting that he begins and ends with And in between those two passages, he has written a great deal about what I call living faith. Um, in other words, it's not just a faith that's based on a cognitive ascension to a propositional truth, kind of like the, the brain with the book, um, nor is it a religious system to where your performance is going to earn you merits in the next life, or you can do enough things from God that he will allow you uh, into his presence at the end of your life. 
for James, um, these two extremes, we, we know them as faith v. works. Um, for James, these were not extremes. These were not contradictions. These things function together and they can't possibly exist any other way. Um, I don't know this book very well beyond that. I can't really point to the specifics that he was dressing in the local, addressing in the local churches to which he was writing. But there is a certain sense that it's not necessary for an understanding of you got to believe and you got to do. There's nothing new in our day that wasn't being addressed in the day of, of the apostle here. Um, but still the controversy of this book of James goes on and on. Some 500 years ago, Martin Luther famously wrestled with the epistle of James. Um, and his conclusions were that it was an epistle of straw and should be struck from canon because it had that, that uh, overtone of you got to do stuff and it's not just faith alone, not just sola fide, as it were. Um, some 300 years after that, um, Soren Kierkegaard picked up James's work and wrestled with it for himself. And it resulted in the essay, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. I studied Kierkegaard for 22 years, a little bit more, and like C.S. Lewis is to scum founder Mike Sayers, so Kierkegaard is to me, a Kierkegaard nerd. Uh, on my bookshelf at home, the top shelf is all Kierkegaard books, and there is a Kierkegaard finger puppet on top of the books. It's really nerdy, but I like that. Um, I think there is so much importance to what he's writing, and that sometimes in his writings, you have to kind of mine it out a little bit, that he was able to foresee answers to questions that we don't even know how to ask yet. Um, and so that's my starting point as we go into this tonight. However, reading his actual texts, actually picking up the book, the original essay, and reading it is a bit less pleasant than stabbing your brain with a Q-tip because he goes on and on and on and, and sometimes in circles. And it takes at least 20 years of a long, slow simmer to begin to fully understand what he's doing. In fact, he was such a prolific writer that, to put it very gently, he was a prolific writer. Even after his death, there were 10,000 pages of material in his apartments that nobody even knew existed yet. Um, so, of real necessity for a 20-minute sermon, what I want to do here is distill this idea of double-mindedness down into something that we can use to guide ourselves and to check ourselves every day. Um, we're going to take a look at uh, double-mindedness, and we're going to take a look at what Kierkegaard calls barriers um, to purity of thought. Um, now, he's using this term, purity of heart, as kind of an opposite to double-minded. Um, double-minded, if, you, if you'd like a picture of it, and I don't have a slide for this one, there is, um, I don't know if he was a god or if he was a mythical figure. Uh, in Greek 
literature in ancient times, there was a figure called Janus, uh, J-A-N-U-S, two faces. One face was happy, one face was sad. Uh, and we see that, you know, I think that uh, that's an example of theater these days. And um, one of the examples I played with in writing this idea was um, last week was uh, International Batman Day. I don't know if anybody knew that. Joe, you should have known that. Um, International Batman Day, and I'm watching a Batman movie, and two faces out. Literally, half of his face is a respectable lawyer, and the other half is, half is burned off, and it's really gross. And, uh, and he's always of two minds about everything. Can't make up his mind, and so what he resorted to doing is flipping a coin every time he had to make a decision. And what I loved that I saw in talking about double-mindedness is the Batman villain, the Riddler, comes up, and and he's saying, hey, let's do the thing, let's do the thing, and I'll, you help me do the thing, and I'll tell you who Batman is. And Two-Face thinks about it. He says, you know, on the one hand, you broke into my place and violated my sanctity, and you're invading me now and imposing yourself upon me, and, uh, and I want to kill you for that. However, I also want to know who Batman is, so I can't decide, so we're going to flip a coin. And the line that I just love is, flips the coin, he says, okay, Heads, we accept your proposal. And tails, we blow your damn head off. Um, and the next scene, of course, they're robbing a bank together and the story goes on. Uh, but I love that as an example of double-mindedness. We get, I want to do the thing, but I don't want to do the thing. I want to do this. I want to talk to this person. I want to follow God, but I'm so angry. I want to follow God, but it's so hard in the culture that we live in. So Kierkegaard is using um, this term purity of heart. It's kind of an opposite to double-minded. And unless you really, really, really have the sickness to want to sit down and read this essay, it's going to be better that I just paraphrase it and take a nice little liberty here to break down the concept. So Kierkegaard 101 there's a key to kind of understanding where we're going, and I don't think he'll roll in his grave for me to say this. Um, although he was one of these guys that once wrote an entire book on how to understand his books. So here we go. The key is subjectivity. And uh, it's not subjectivity in the sense like everything goes. Like we understand subjectivity to say, well, it's all subjective. And so it doesn't really matter um, everything is good. And that's not what we're talking about at all. Um, the way we're understanding subjectivity here is how you would say you are subject to. You are subject to. You are subject to traffic laws. Therefore, you stop at a red light. If you lived in a kingdom, you know, like a, like a king, think, think, go all medieval here. You think a king and his servants... And if you lived in a king, you would live and die by the king's law and the provision. I mean, and that's just what we're talking about here. We live under our Messiah and King, Jesus. The whole council of Scripture and Christian teaching throughout the ages has assumed just that and teaches us to live that way as subjects to Christ. Within its vast, vast, vast complexities, Kierkegaard's written work is about this one thing, 
one thing. How do we live as Bible-guided Christians in the middle of a secularized, culture-approved Christianity, or Christendom, as he would call it? For him, there was a most important distinction there. You have people who follow after Christ, and we have people who belong to a kind of religion that the culture says it's okay as long as you stay within the boundaries that we put around it. Um, So coming from Kierkegaard's essay into the book of James, you need to understand that he assumes that his readers, at least the readers of this work, are people who are subject to King Jesus and who want to live their lives in this pure of heart, this purified kind of way. Purity of heart is to will one thing. You can hear this echoed in Christ in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's easy for him to say, right? Um, It's hard sometimes. It's hard to do that. Jesus knew that. The Bible knows that. This kind of living, this kingdom subject living, takes a lot of effort that sometimes doesn't pay off, even if your intentions and motivations are pure. Sometimes, and sometimes is a very gentle way to say it, sometimes the very best of our actions can come out of a mixed place. Our hearts don't always will one thing, don't always love the Lord or our brothers and sisters as they should. And this is why we need God's word and why we need teachers and pastors to instruct us, teach us, train us the way of righteousness. Um, Once again, I don't have the verses up there, but you can find this in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, Ephesians 4.11. If you want those verses, see me afterwards and I'll give you my notes if you want. Um, So let's recap a bit here. The word of God, the Bible, calls us to live in a way that the love of God and his ways are to inform us and flow into how we do everything. doesn't always work out that way. It's a process and a practice. Sanctification is the big, um, big $5,000 word that describes this process. Um, Kierkegaard was um, very much a man who got into the process and practice thing. Um, in, in his essay, Purity of Heart, he talks about what it is to live with a single-minded focus on Jesus and integrating all that we do into the service of his king. He also offers a, a few ideas about some of the things that get in our way, and I think that's important to address them. Um, Earlier in the sermon, I tried to address how I've run into those myself. And, uh, and I would like for you to take a moment as we go through these. And don't raise your hand. Don't do anything like that. But just engage with it. Um, so five things. Number one, barriers to willing one thing. Varieties and great moments are not one thing. I know variety and great moments are not one thing. And I don't suppose that has to mean terribly good things. Yes, there's always, um, there's always a great movie 
There's a great superhero movie. There's a great whatever movie. There's uh, great music. Uh, there's great shows. There's great food. There's great things to do in our lives. Um, and when we go after that greatness, and I think hey, I've had the best meal I've ever had, now we raise the bar just a little bit, and we've got to go have another meal. We've got to see another movie. We've got to have another show. There always has to be more. And there can't possibly be a one thing except more, more, more. Um, and I don't suppose it has to be good things. I suppose it can be, um, I need this bill to be paid. Um, I need a solution to this problem. I need this x-ray to come back normal. Um, my family's falling apart. I don't know what to do. And it, we get caught up into a frenzy of good or bad where we're essentially living for either the next glorious thing or for the next shoe to drop. And there is instruction in the Bible that we can learn to train ourselves to seek God through the good or the bad of the storms. And number two, barriers to willing one thing, the reward disease. Um, quid pro quo, uh, I do what I do. I run after God because I want him to bless me. I want him to do the thing for me. Or I want somebody to think that I'm great or um, whatever it is. You can fill in the blank. It's you want something from, from God. You want something from persons. And so you pour your energy into that not because of the thing you're doing, because of what you want back. Number three, barriers to willing one thing, willing out of fear of punishment. Again, not a terribly hard concept there. You can't... No, not you can't. Uh, it's a temptation to serve God. It's a temptation to run after God because you're afraid that if you don't, he's going to smite you uh, or that you're going to lose. You're going to have loss. Uh, one of the things that I ran into that's particular to this is um, a few years ago, I was, uh, my wife and I were going to look at buying a house in a particular neighborhood. And housing prices are ridiculous in this city. And it just so happened that there were a bunch of houses empty in the neighborhood we wanted that were kind of reasonable and so we got an eight we got a real estate guy uh, who's a good friend and uh, we began pouring our energy into trying to do this and we weren't able to do it at the time there's just no way and I'm thankful that it didn't happen but what came out of that it was I was frustrated and I said we're going to lose out on these things we're gonna lose out on homes in this neighborhood and he just said Jeff you don't have a home in that neighborhood. You have nothing to lose. You're afraid of losing something that you don't have. Um, and I certainly have approached God that way before, uh, wanting to clamor and get his attention to keep something that I don't really have in the first place. Uh, number four, barriers to willing one thing, egocentric service before God. Um, and this is kind of coming back to the clever ideas. My ideas are clever. I'm good. I'm a good enough person or whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Um, I think we can all fill in the blanks with this. It's serving God because you think that you have something to offer him 
that he gave you in the first place. Um, and number five, barriers to willing one thing, commitment to a certain degree. And that's, that's a trickier one. Service to uh, commitment to a certain degree. I'm with God until this happens. Um, I want to follow God, but it's so hard. If I ever reach the th this threshold, I won't follow. I can't serve. If, uh, to kind of drive it real home really personally, and I hope we never, as scum of the earth, I hope we never have to face this. Truly, I do. But if we ever come to the point where, you know, that door has to close, please, please don't give up following the Lord just because this may go away from us. Please follow the path. No matter what, um, let your commitment be all the way. Um, so the five things we talked about. Um, are there more? Probably. Certainly. Uh, I certainly recognize these th five things that work in me, even writing this message um, as I write this. Um, as I'm going through ideas to write this, I put down an idea and I'm like, ah, that's number four. It's so hard. Hashtag, the struggle is real. These things are very much alive in me. Um, the person who has to get up and talk about this. Um, now, the weird part about this, and um, as we wrap up here, and we will continue on with worship and, and song and in prayer and through coming to the Lord's table, the weird thing that I'm going to say, and I hope that you recognize it, is that I hope that you recognize these things in yourself. As a pastor, as a shepherd, I want you to. I want you to see these things in yourself. And I want the recognition of these things to drive you into the Word of God, into a stronger pursuit of God, and produce in you a stronger desire to spend your lives together with people who are also kind of bugged about these things and want to chase after Jesus in better in better, in more single-minded ways. But that's true community. Where people as diverse as you can imagine are united by the common unity that comes from the pursuit of holiness over and above um, the niches that we so easily confuse with community. And with God's help, with his ever-present help, amen, we can do that. So let's continue in worship. Sing, stand, dance, pray. Take of his body and his blood, by which you were purchased as a treasured possession of Almighty God. If you want to be prayed for, if you want someone to pray with, come down and see us in the prayer cave. Don't let these barriers hold you back from the Lord tonight. The Lord be with you.